So it's probably many of you remember in 1966, not because you were alive, but just, you know what I mean. In 1966, John Lennon, frontman for the Beatles, said one startling statement to uh, religiously uh, sensitive listeners. Who remembers that startling statement? Say it. It's okay. You can talk at church. It's all right. Nobody was... See, are you the only person born in 1966? Yeah, maybe that's it. We're more popular than Jesus. He said that, and everybody was like, Beatles! They're like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. So, now that is very famous, very infamous. What's less known is his apology for what he said. And I'm going to read it to you now and get ready to laugh your little booties off. Because this is John Lennon's apology. Should I do it in the accent? Yeah? I wasn't saying. No. <laughs> I can't now. I don't know if I can do it without it. I wasn't saying whatever they were saying I was saying. <laughs> I'm sorry I said it, really. I never meant it to be a lousy anti-religious thing. I apologize if that will make you happy. I still don't know what, quite, what I've done. I've tried to tell you what I did do, but if you want me to apologize if that will make you happy, then okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> This is the poet John Lennon. (laughs) This is hilarious because it's probably one of the worst apologies ever. And it's obviously not sincere, which reminds all of us that we hate crappy apologies. We hate them. Now, let's make this really come home for us. Even for us in Hollywood, this has been a very interesting but expected week. Who's been tracking the whole Kevin Hart controversy? Yes. So this has been a very big deal in Hollywood. A Wired, I'll explain a little bit, but a Wired article came out this week saying it wasn't that it was his past like a decade over, a decade ago, uh, homophobic tweets that actually sank his chances to host the Oscars. This is what the Wired article said. This was the quote, uh, the, uh, the, the title of it. It says, and I quote, Kevin Hart's tweets don't doom him. His messy apology did. That's a wired article. It wasn't his homophobic tweets. It was his crappy apology. And all of us, again, Christian or not, desire, desire, desire sincerity, especially with apologies. So when we hear, I'm sorry, okay? Or when we hear, I'm sorry, but, when we hear, I'm sorry, if you feel... You know how my daughter apologizes, my little nine-year-old? She always says this, Daddy, I'm sorry that you made me do that. That's how she always apologizes, that you brought it to this point. That is what's called attrition. When you're sorry and, and have a regret for getting caught. Contrition is a genuine desire for change. So then, what makes a real, a genuine apology, the thing we're all wanting? What makes one? And an even more relevant question today is, what does it look like to apologize to God? Do we apologize to God? Should we apologize to God? Perhaps there are some people in this room, Christian or not, who are thinking, nah, dog, God owes me an apology. If we could, I want to take some time this morning and uncover what sincerity and owning the wrong looks like when God is part of the dynamic. So then, a lot of what we're going to be talking about is the taboo, hated word, repentance. Repentance. 
easily one of the richest practices Christians could possibly possess, and yet tragically it conjures up sandwich boards and megaphones and angry prophets. Or perhaps there's somebody here going, oh, another preacher talking about repentance. Bah, bah, boring. We want something new, right? But if any of us actually think that, it only shows us how far we've actually drifted. So some feel this way because repentance or apologies, especially for the Western civilization, or especially for Angelinos, because we, because I, base their image on our ability, performance, or perception. Thus, to apologize or repent devalues what I've made myself image to be, that being our truth, our ideas, our looks, etc. And let me just say this as well. Even religious people despise repenting. Only under great, great duress does a religious person actually admit that they have sinned. Why? Because their only hope is their moral right goodness. So to repent is to indebt us to one another, it's to lower our heads, and it uncovers that we are not only in the wrong, bear with me on this, but capable of horrible things. We are capable of horrible things. That's what the repentant person knows to be true. A simple apology says, my actions are wrong. A a repentant person transcends that and says, no, 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 my heart is wrong. Do you believe this about yourself? That you and I are capable of the absolute unthinkable? Actually, if I could be so brave at 10 a.m. in the morning, I hope you've had your coffee. If I could be so brave to say that the minute we say that humanity is inherently good, I believe in the the goodness of humanity ultimately, or they say that I am or we are, then we've taken one giant strides towards doing the unthinkable. Because the worst thing somebody could possibly do was say, no, 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 not me. That will never happen to me. This is why our slow, like, sailing through Hebrews chapter 11 has been so impactful, where we've studied 16 individuals, and it has been so haunting and so hopeful all at the same time, because it wakes us up. Because if we hear of murderers like Moses and Samson, of prostitutes like Rahab, of drunks like Noah, and then we look at these men and women and say, well, I could never do that. Well, it would never happen to me. Then we've entirely missed the point of Hebrews chapter 11. And we should honestly just start the whole series over again. (laughs) Hebrews 11 reminds us that the Bible's heroes are actually its villains. We have to believe that. Because the Bible isn't trying to show us how to live a good life, thus get a good heaven. That is not what the Bible is interested in showing any of you or any of us. The point of the Bible is to show that God persistently loves and partners with and grants grace to the most undeserving, murderers, prostitutes, and drunks. So the redemptive history of God illuminates us to see that the strongest and the sexiest men and women of all time cannot overcome their own wickedness. No matter matter the looks, how strong they are, how wise they are, nobody can overcome their own wickedness. But if they repent and they cling to God, they will triumph. Now, the reason I'm giving such an 
arching Hebrews 11 caveat is because we're about to cross the threshold, as we just read, onto King David. Easily one of the most predominant figures in biblical history. But dare I say, if we took every single one of the 16s moments of weakness, we took every one of the 16s moments of strength, and we put them into a Jesus blender, we would get David. He is this weird culmination of all of them. We'd have David. David, the giant killer. Everybody's familiar with that story. David, the faithful. David, the great king. David, the psalmist. And today, David, the murderer. David, the doubter. David, the sex-crazed maniac. David the violent, David the guilty. And yet the most surprising thing about David out of all of this is 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. The chapter right after what we just read where it says, and this is post-murder and sex scandal, it says the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. David the murderer, David the sex-crazed man, David the man after God's own heart. Which leaves us going, the poop? What? How? Repentance. Repentance to a good God. So hopefully we're starting to see that this is more than ever we possibly could imagine. Repentance is far more. In fact, the word repent in all of its forms appears over a thousand times in the very Bibles you are holding. It was the very message Jesus proclaimed. It was his very first message. It was the very first message of Christ's forerunner, that be John the Baptist, his very first message. It was the very first message of the apostles in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. Clearly, it's important. But some of us are today going, okay, cool, it's important. How do we do it? Or what has it got to do with our faith in a faith series? Or how does it affect my Monday morning? Well, let's discover that from David's darkest hour. So read with me 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. It's very specific. He was on a couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Ah, isn't that that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You see how intentional the servant is being? Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from the uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. Church, we can add a new title to King David's repertoire. And that is David the abuser. And sadly, Bathsheba the the victim. Because who, after all, refuses the king? No one. Many commentators and scholars go as far as saying David raped her. Theologian Jonathan Edwards says it like this. It was probably just about sun setting which was the time of day when those who were legally unclean were cleansed. The case being this, it greatly increased David's temptation. For when a woman was thus cleansed from her uncleanliness, then it was lawful for her husband to lie with her, so that it put David in mind of that act and stirred his lust. David decided to not look away. One of the most dangerous things anybody can do is decide to not look away. And he becomes this predator-stalking prey. 
You see, David just didn't happen to see her bathing. Like he looked out his window, he was like, oh my gosh. No, that's not what happened at all. He thought about her bathing. He knew she'd be bathing. He saw her, he imagined, he wanted, he inquired, he got. Then look what happens, verse five of chapter 12. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. I'm with child. So let's talk this out together if we could. Let's just make this personal. What would you do? What would you do? Like, think about it. I have an affair. You find out the mistress or whatever has a baby, is with child. What would you do? Maybe that's too broad of a question. What would you want to do? What would you want to do? How would you react or how do you react when you're found out? Do you rationalize? Do you blame shift? Or do you, like David, cover it up? Like every celebrity is doing right now to their Twitter feed. Every celebrity is scrubbing their Twitter feed. This is David's Dr. Evil plan. He decides to bring home Bathsheba's husband Uriah in the hopes that he'll have a night with her and then they'll be able to claim the child as Uriah's. But you know what his friend, partner, and ally Uriah does? The very friend who chapters earlier, when David was a fugitive running away from a wicked, evil king, the very same Uriah who risked his life to save David, this very same Uriah who was so committed to the military, so committed to his king, decided that it would be unfair for him to go home, be with his wife, and guess what he does? I'm gonna sleep on a rug in the basement with, with some of the help. And that's when he goes, I'm not going home. And he made that decision drunk. David got him drunk and Uriah made that decision. He's wiser drunk than David is not drunk. And tragically, because Uriah will not go home, David's like, go home, because Uriah will not go home. David makes a catastrophic, catastrophic decision. Mark Twain says this, A sin takes on new and real terror when there seems to be a chance that it is going to be found out. Here is David's new and real terror in 2 Samuel 11, 15. This is what he writes. Keep in mind, as he's writing this, this this is the same David who wrote Psalm 23 who is now writing the death warrant. The same ink, the same pen, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. If we do not believe, Christians, that that sin is a spiraling descent, then allow this to convince you. Now, sin can be defined as anything contrary to God. It's a revolt against him. But some of us view sin as like tripping over a stone, picking ourselves up and like, hmm, I'm good. That's not the case at all, friends. Do you you remember those giant squishy, that black ball thing in The Incredibles that like stuck to him? I need more mature illustrations. (laughs) I really do. You remember those those things? Remember the, uh, the, the spider web in Lord of the Rings? This is all I got. I wish I could give you a sports analogy. Remember when the front runner... Does the quarterback? Remember, I, I, don't, I wish I could give those to you. Duran, help me. I wish I could do it. But I can't. Sin operates by pulling us down. 
It pulls us inward. It's not a rock we trip over. It is quicksand. Just to think, oh, I had that one stumble. No, no, those stumbles. David was dealing with those stumbles all the way to the point of Bathsheba and Uriah. It's quicksand. The book of James in the New Testament says this. Think of David as I read this verse from the New Testament. One is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Uriah is dead. And now Bathsheba moves into the palace, has a baby, so some time has passed, and get this, no one knows. David did it. David did it. He got away with it. Oh my gosh, he did it. All the tracks in the snow, he did like a broom thing over. So nobody knows he walked in the snow. Now David can exhale. He's got to be feeling good. Everything's fine. But yet, there's something off. There's static. There's, there's distortion. Something is off. And what we're about to look at is the most important lesson with the doctrine of hamartiology, that being the doctrine of sin. This is sin 101. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26. When the wife of Uriah, look at how this author is really laying into this. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. She loved, loved, loved her husband. And now she is sleeping with the enemy. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There's the static. There's what's off. It displeased the Lord. Sin 101. In the Hebrew, this means shattered. This shattered the Lord. But what does our good God do once he has been shattered? What he has always done since the beginning of mankind, he steps in. God steps in, just as he did in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve, they revolted, they covered themselves. God in the, God in the garden comes in and goes, where are you? What is happening? Why are you hiding? He does this with David. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. Here's how God does it. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is God saying, where are you? I was speaking with a missionary a year ago, and she was telling me that in Indonesia, where she was a missionary for 20 years, that there is, in most of the homes, the houses, there is one closet or one small room that they put all, it's part of their culture, to put all of the unwanted, undesirable, junk, embarrassing things in one room. This goes here, this goes here, this goes here. Everything goes there. And forgive me, because it actually has a a word for this room, and I don't know it, and I'm sorry. But the problem is, this room, over generations, over decades, over years, begins to get mold and smell, and insects create colonies, and everything in there becomes black, and it's never cleaned up, because the door is shut. Out of sight, out of mind, it's hidden. I don't want to think about it. The door is shut. God wants to open every door in our house. Every door. Why are you? Why are you hiding? He wants every door open. 
And sometimes how that happens, it's a sermon. Sometimes it's quiet time of reading. Sometimes it's a song. But more often than not, it's a right word from a right relationship. Nathan comes in that door and he doesn't say, I know what you did last summer, you freak. He doesn't say that. He doesn't verbally decapitate him. You know what Nathan does? He goes, I want to tell you a story about something that happened in your land. Because Nathan knows, Nathan knows that it is far easier for us to identify the sins of others rather than our own. This is Nathan's plan. And can we also just commend Nathan, his courageous and brave act, as he approaches a murderous man who has already killed other people to keep things quiet? That's how brave Nathan is, okay? He stands before him. And as his story builds, as we just read, as his story builds and the villain is called out and who is a mere image of David, David has smoke coming out of his ears and to prove how dark and violent his heart has become, David shouts, kill the man. That wasn't the law or the rule for people stealing lambs. David goes, kill him. And Nathan Nathan, Nathan, Nathan matches his intensity and says to the king, verse 7, you're that man. You are. You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. This is what Nathan is proclaiming of how much God has been shattered by this. I anointed you over king of Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you Israel and Judah. And if that had all been too little, I would have given you even more. You know what God is saying? I would have given you anything. I would have given you anything you wanted. And you stole this woman. It's chilling. It's very, very chilling. And it's as if in that moment, you are the man, which scholars will say is the most dramatic sentence in all of the Old Testament. It's in that very moment, like lightning striking the top of David's head, he saw clearly for the first time because he saw as God saw. Oh, may we, may this be a church of Nathans. May we be a church of Nathans. May we be a church of Nathans. Now hear me, not witch hunters, not sin sniffers, not iniquity investigators, not debauchery detectives. Anybody who see how far I can go? Anybody cares? No? I got 12 more in the chamber ready to go. Come up afterwards. I'll tell them to you. None of those things, but disciples. If, if you're new here and you're wondering, should I make collective church my family, my local community, my church? And any of that processing is with the expectations of, can I find my best friend here? As much as I wish I could promise you that you'll like find your Joey to your Chandler, as much as I wish, (laughs) the truth is, it might not happen. But we are committed, collective church, to making disciples who are discipling and being discipled. Meaning, Nathan and David probably aren't best friends. They probably don't even follow each other on the gram. Like, who knows? Like, they don't, you know? We see nowhere where they hang out all the time. We see nowhere where they go bowling together. 
They are not placing wrong expectations on one another as a spiritual community. And yet, they're exactly what a faith community is to be to one another. Davids who receive, Nathans who rebuke. The church, we'll pick on this church, this church must possess this nature of interactivity. We must. That being Hebrews chapter 3, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. AKA, that's Nathan doing exactly what he needs to do to David. Us exhorting, which means confronting daily about the ways in which we're missing our sins. If you think you know all of your sins, no, 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 no. There are flaws that are hidden. We need Nathans. So if you're wondering how to do this very practically, just look how Nathan did this. I, I should have a screen. And Tanner. No, no, the other one, the second Samuel. Not yet. Turn away. The other, oh my gosh. Somebody replace Tanner. Just joking, buddy. You're doing a great job. Come to the volunteer party tonight. <laughs> you're doing great. Put a falcon on your arm tonight. This is how, this is how Nathan does it. This is how Nathan does it. I want us to see this. He reminds David of God's absolute great kindness. I wish we had time to go over all of them. We don't, forgive me. Nathan was very clear in telling David where he went wrong. Because sometimes we want to call one another out. And they're like, you're being an idiot. And the person's like, how? And like, mm, you're just an idiot. But we, it can't happen. And then also Nathan is wise enough to scripture to be able to say, here's the consequences for sin. If you do not return to the Lord, this is what happens. So these are some very wise ways, very loving ways, very gentle ways. We must be gentle in restoring a brother. Otherwise, now again, let me just say this. I also just want to say this as a pastor and as a friend. I need you to call me out. I need it. I need you to be a Nathan as you need Nathans for you. So I need it. And I will just say this. Otherwise, we will not make it in our faith. We will not make it. Show me one person who has stepped away from the bride of Christ who was still faithful to the husband. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Do we believe so strongly, collective church, about the importance of the church and its relationship to our faith? Where would David have been without Nathan? We don't know. Where would Peter have been without Paul stepping in? Where would Moses have been without Jethro stepping in? Where would I be without you and you without one another? Nathan calls his brother to repentance, to return. Or as C.S. Lewis calls repentance, it means working with God and killing a part of yourself. It's undergoing a kind of death. Now listen, this is what we've been building to. This undergoing is one of the most supreme acts of faith a Christian can practice. Do you know why I would say that about repentance? That it's a supreme act of faith? Because the faith that we are talking about isn't merely a question of, does God exist? No. It's if we believe God. So it's not, does, do I believe that God exists? It's just simply, do I believe God? Full stop. These 16 people all had a faith framework going, there's a higher power, I'm a theist, there's something, there's God. They all had that framework. Nobody had to convince them. What none of them have 
was the framework to trust God's intentions or words. Sure, you're going to give me a baby. Sure, there's a flood coming. Sure, you're going to grant me to be able to take these people down. Sure, you're going to be there as a repentant-filled act with open arms, with no guilt, no shame, no condemnation. That takes faith. It takes faith to go, I have been completely revolting against God. I've done some of the most vilest things you could ever possibly imagine. And it takes faith to go, I'm going to go running back to you. And you're going to be there with zero condemnation. That takes faith. So the question again is less, do you believe in him? But rather, do you just believe him? So in closing, I want to make this outrageously practical. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm Psalms 51, Psalm 51. If you're struggling to find it, the table of contents will be helpful. It's basically in the middle of your Bible. I love that sound. The wrestling pages of the Bible. I love it. I love it so much. See, luckily for us, David is a journaler. This dude, like, loved moleskins. He had his glass of red wine. He'd pop on some Kenny G, and he's like, I'm just going to let my tears fall on this page. See, that's good for us. That's good for us. What we're about to read, Psalm 51, is considered by every biblical scholar as the finest and most profound example of repentance in all of the Bible. What we're about to read. I want you to make the call if it's a sincere apology or not. So knowing everything we just read, read these words with fresh eyes. You are the man, the adultery, the murder. Read these words with fresh eyes. Psalm 51, 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This is a playbook, a recipe, whatever you want to call it, for how one should repent. So it starts with how David did it, with certainty. David appeals to God on the basis of his loyal love and his infinite compassion, his mercy. He makes no claims to deserve forgiveness on his position. I'm the king. You appointed me. I worked so hard. My accolades, my pain, my plan. But also, David doesn't also say, if you do this, I'll do this. There's no bargaining with God in this. He just cries out. And what it shows us is we must not be afraid to admit everything that is wrong with ourselves. Do not be afraid to admit it, especially to the Lord. Because while we're yet recognizing all of that's bad, we are also recognizing that we are the object of God's love precisely because of that shortcoming. David's sincerity is based on that certainty, not in illusions about himself, but in the endless mercy of God. So here's the question. Are we intimately familiar enough with God's mercy and his loyal love that you could base that, you could base your entire hope on his love and his mercy? Think about that. Or do we need something else? Our entire hope going just on his love, just on his mercy, that's all I need. Or do we need something else? Next, Psalm 51, verses two through three. We're still going through the playbook of how to repent. It says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is conviction. 
Conviction is recognition. We must have a recognizing, an eye-opening, a heart-rending awareness of the God that our sin shatters. He says, my sin is ever before me. It's no intermittent flash, like, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. It is a constant, almost obsession. It's an awareness, a perpetual awareness. And David, now convicted, can fully orbit his sin, seeing all of it. There is zero rationalization, zero attempt to to justify or moral laxity. He makes no excuses or minimizes it, like Adam and Eve did in the garden. He doesn't say, yeah, but Bathsheba was naked on the house. He doesn't say that. But Uriah moved to next door. He doesn't do any of it. Next, Psalm 51, 4 through 6. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is confession of guilt. But did you notice, as he's confessing his sins, the words adultery and murder are nowhere in there? So how is this a true confession? He's not even saying adultery, murder. He doesn't say it. Why? Because he is going deeper than the actions committed. Now, don't get me wrong. It's important to confess things, but you don't catch tigers by the tail. You must always go for its head where it bites its source. This is the only way to receive, as David said, truth in the inward parts. So yes, to repent means a change of mind, but it is a thorough change of understanding of all that is in the mind. This includes a discovery of deeper, deeper sin. We must be trying to discover deeper and deeper sin and then hate it. Hate it. I want us to go deeper as a church. You're like, oh, I, I did this. Yes, it's beyond that. Why did you do that? And then you figure out that why and you hate it. This is the last one for today. Psalm 51, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop is a type of herb or plant. It's used in the Old Testament to purify one of leprosy. You get that? You know what he's saying? Cleanse me as if, as if I'm a leprous man. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. But get this, things turn here. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is celebration. Our repentance must end in celebration. There's so much here in Psalm 51 and in David and Nathan and Bathsheba that I'm doing an absolute injustice to it. And I forgive me for this can't be an exhaustive. But I do want us to notice that if you have sincerely apologized or repented, then delirious celebratory joy will blossom and bloom over forgiven sins. If we go, I repented, then you walk away going, I hate myself. No, we are to absolutely have delirious joy over forgiven sins. We hate the sins. We don't condemn ourselves as we leave repentance. True repentance never leads to despair. It only leads to chief joy. Do you believe that the God that we have is not a God of discouragement? I think some of us think that. 
Now, as much as I wish I could close in prayer and walk off this stage and say, hey, go enjoy your lunch, as much as I wish I could do that, there is a giant matzo ball in the text in 2 Samuel 12. And because we've tried to always say that we are a church that goes straight for the jugular and talks about the truth, even as hard as it may be, we're going to have to deal with this. Because David's severe consequences of David's actions, see, if you're unfamiliar with the life of David from this point on, it's a total travesty. What will follow this is rape, revolt, rejection, and incest. His bloodline never recovers. David never recovers. Consequences so severe. And we're about to see one right now. Actually, I'm just going to read it. 2 Samuel 12, 15. This is heavy. We got to do this. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in a sackcloth on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. A week later, on the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can, he now, how can we now tell that, that him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. I guarantee nobody wants to be me right now. There is no high-gloss answer for this that will make your lunches taste sweeter. This is real, and this is heavy. And something I believe that those here who aren't Christians probably will never be able to grasp. But what we have is a sovereign God. All that means is, is his all-knowing and his all-powerfulness and his fully present self all intersect at the same point. That is God's sovereignty. So his strength is just as unbounded as his wisdom, which is just as perfect as his timing. Essentially, God is not under your control, your control, your control, or my control. Things happen that I don't, that we do not fully understand. We're all very familiar with the words he gives and he takes away. Christians and non-Christians love to believe in a God who is great and powerful enough to stop all suffering. Why doesn't your God do this? But what Christians and non-Christians don't like to consider is that at the same time, God is also great and powerful enough to have reasons on why certain suffering isn't stopped. Enter David and his deceased child. No one in here is allowed to be more upset about this situation with God, with the child, all things, than David himself. No one. But what was David's response? Look at verse 20 of chapter 12. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He worshipped. If David worshipped, 
but we're here going, God is a monster, then we are missing something of the character of God. So it leaves us asking, what does David know about God that we don't? It's this. It's the warranted certainty in his goodness. What we've studied for the last 16 weeks is so actualized in David's life that once he hears of his child's passing, he can worship. This isn't morbid. This is such an entirely different plane of faith that it doesn't even comprehend. So then maybe the gospel, because if we are at this point where we are going, this is crazy, what's going on, God? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. So then maybe the gospel hasn't reached its scandalous level yet in our own hearts. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, where God took the innocent at the cost of somebody else's consequences. Should the cross of Jesus Christ bother us just as much as this child in 2 Samuel 12? Yes. The answer is yes. David didn't die for his sin. The innocent child did. Although that would never, if you think about it, the death would have been easier and more preferred from David. But because of Christ, we too shall not die. Innocence died in our condemned place, making repentance and a return possible. This should shake us. What love is this? You see, repentance is only sincere when the one we're returning to is our delight. And this is, this is heavy. I want the one we're returning to, we want the one we're returning to to believe that he is so good, even in horrific situations, that we can still proclaim him as sovereign, as Lord, as good, as faithful, as right in worship. My prayer for us is simple, that we'd be a church who continually repents to a God even though we may not understand. A people who regularly put to death the indwelling sin because we're people who continually delight in Jesus. Jesus who was crushed in our place so that we become men and women, daughters and sons of God. Let me pray for us.